Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Content Clearinghouse. I'm Brett Chisholm. I'm Josh Evans. And on today's episode, we combine the shortest off-top with the longest content piece to create a normal-sized episode. So I have a quick story about how one man's astute observation during the Great Depression created an entire town of Coca-Cola millionaires. And then Josh talks IRL scary monsters. He certainly wins the Overachieving Contentologist Award again, as he is covering not one, not two, but three monster movies that are grounded in reality. This Josh-selected trilogy ranked from low budget to slightly less low budget really hits the primal fear nerve because who knows, the next time you're out camping or surfing or just hanging out in Florida, one of these real-life monsters might come for you. Movies, shows, and video games, podcast books, and their acclaims, let their favorite content become yours. It's the Content Clearing House. Content Clearing House. And it starts right now. Brett. Josh. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing okay. I'm actually sick right now. Um, hopefully it's not too noticeable. Through the power of Lemsip and uh, I think Sudafed, I don't know. My wife gave me a couple of medicinal treatments, um, but uh, besides that, I'm good. <laughs> well, I can't really hear it actually. Okay, what, uh, what's wrong? Just like a cold or something? It's just a bad head cold. Yeah, oh, man. I know it's I, well. I don't know, but I'm like 99% sure it's not COVID because I had a tickle in my throat, which is usually the indication that I'm getting sick. But I was scheduled for a COVID test. Because I was traveling to Brazil for work, and they require you to have a negative test before you arrive. And so I got the test. Um, it came back negative, and I thought, oh, okay, well, it's definitely, you know, maybe I'm not getting sick. So I flew the trip. Uh, it's very long, like 17, 18 hours in the 737, like deadheading, flying. Uh, short layover in Brazil. Woke up with a runny nose, and I'm like, uh-oh, I better just push through this and get back to the States. And then the next morning, I just woke up, like, totally congested and i'm hoping that it clears up before uh before next weekend because you and i are uh going skydiving or we're supposed to go skydiving and like flying you can't really skydive with uh huge uh, nasal congestion uh, blocked uh, sinuses not a good idea well i wouldn't say you can't but you shouldn't and the reason i will say I won't say you can't. It's because I did, when I first started skydiving, I went like to a boogie or something with like a horrible head cold and totally blew out one of my eardrums on the climb to altitude. So you can do it, but it is highly discouraged. Yeah. No, you should it, not do it. It's not. I mean, I had to call in sick to work. I mean, it is just like um, I could feel it um, on that last leg. I was deadheading. And just like every descent, actually on the flight before when I operated, you know, any descent was just like a massive like uh, sinus congestion headache in my forehead of all places. Like it's great. I just get these like sinus blocks like up in my forehead when I have a really bad cold. Um, anyway, that's enough about me. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing great. But I was going to say one more thing. Yeah. Uh, nothing like talking for an hour and a half to help your uh, stuffed up sinuses. I bet that's going to be fun. Well, you know, if it wasn't this, I would actually be playing thong optional croquet at Camp V with Bruce. And that's a real thing. <laughs> I don't even know what those words mean when you put them together in that order. 
<laughs> well, you'll have to come join us for... I definitely will. But yeah. you did mention that we're going skydiving next week. And so that does bring up a little business for the show. We are going to have uh, next week no show because Brett and, Brett and I are taking our, what is this, the second annual content clearinghouse skydiving trip? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, Last time we, we, were, we, we was in Texas. This time <laughs> we was going to be in uh, Minnesota. Skydiving yeah, we're cities. going to the Sup Girl Boogie with yeah. Mike Silva, which uh, I'm pretty excited about. I've already started packing. And it's still like a, I usually pack the night before, but I'm so excited about this one. I've already started laying my bag out. So Oh, I thought you were saying packing your parachute. That shouldn't take you that long. No, that's done. I did that <laughs> a week and a half ago because I was so excited. Yeah, I actually, you know, I said Minnesota. I think it's technically in Wisconsin, but they call it Skydive. Yeah, over the border. Yeah, it's over the border. Indeed. Yep. Uh, I'm doing great, though. Uh, you know, last week I told you that I got that new chair. Well... The day after we recorded, I had to strip that chair down and take it back because it was a total piece of crap. It's like the lumbar support pad was folded over, and so it was like jamming into my back. It's like it felt like I was sitting against like a hard bar right in the middle of my back. It was a to- total piece of junk. So I took it back. I was without a real chair for a few days, um, so I reupholstered the old trash chair with some tape. Not oh bad, gosh. not a bad solution to hold me over. But now, <laughs> so the tra- now, Brett, I have like a captain's chair. <laughs> I, I just decided like I'm not going to go cheap. I just like went all out and got like a $300 chair. And now it really does feel like I'm sitting on a cloud, but with exceptional back support. So you, so you brought back the trash chair as an interim to your new uh, expensive chair. It had an encore, yes, an encore okay. performance. And uh, my wife, not happy about seeing that trash chair all taped up. <laughs> yeah. she I thought- did tease her a little bit and said, maybe I'll just uh, maybe I'll just stay with this trash chair. Such an economical solution. But in the end, I ended up spending three times as much as I was planning. I probably had another good 10 years in it, huh? Easily. Yeah. yeah. Duct tape, magical. Yeah. But I'm doing great, buddy. Good. Can't wait to see you next week for uh, some oh, skydive. I'm, I'm excited. So excited to go skydive with friends. And uh, yeah, I think we're going to have to tear the sky a new air hole. I think so. One more time for the content clearinghouse. I think so. I I, uh, I think I'll be current, but I don't think I'll be very proficient because I think I've made uh, two skydives in the last, like a month and a half ago. Those are the, and that was after a month and a half of no jumping. So uh, I'm going to have to knock the old rust off. And, I'm sure uh, you'll be fine. Oh yeah, probably start you off with like a, a nice twelve way or something to get you <laughs> get you current again. Yep, that's perfect. Well, you ready for some off top action? Because I got some off top yeah. action for you. Awesome. So I have a really interesting story that I've been sitting on for a while. Um, there's not much to this, so it is going to be kind of a quick off top, but it is super interesting. And today I want to tell you the story of. Quincy, Florida, and it's also known as the town of Coca-Cola Millionaires. Are you familiar with this at all? No, I've never heard of this. Yeah, this is a this. I, I don't remember how this came into uh, uh, into my awareness, but um, uh, like I said, it's I've been sitting on this for a couple of months, I think. But apparently, during the 1920s, 1930s, it was right in the middle of the Great Depression. There was a banker 
who observed people using their very last nickels to buy Coca-Cola. I mean, these, you know, they were down to their last cents and they were spending it on bottles of Coke. Now, considering this is obviously a time where people weren't exactly flush with cash to invest, uh, the stock was trading relatively uh, low, very cheap. I believe from what I could find, it was about $19 per share. Now, the person that noticed this potential opportunity was a banker by the name of Pat Monroe. So Pat, not only did he invest in multiple Coca-Cola shares, but he convinced a lot of his neighbors to do the same. So several people followed this advice from this guy, Pat. He, he, was, this, uh, he was a trusted kind of pillar of the community. He, he worked as a banker. Uh, you know, people trusted him. Well, wouldn't you know it? The Coca-Cola shares, as well as his decision to urge his community to continue investing in general, even when the market was down, not only saved the town of Quincy from the worst of the Great Depression, but it brought some serious wealth to this little unknown town in Florida. So at one point, Quincy actually became the single richest town per capita in the entire United States. Whoa. 67 of its inhabitants were dubbed Coca-Cola millionaires. And these families amassed huge fortunes from these early shares of Coke. These have been passed down through generations of their families. And also, uh, Coca-Cola stock was paying dividends. And those dividends reportedly saved the town from every recession since then, and also when crops failed, because this town was largely an agricultural uh, economy at the time as well. So today, Quincy's just this quiet little town, has a population of less than 7,000 people. But apparently, if you go there, there are still signs of this huge Coca-Cola legacy uh, and the impact that Coke has had on this little town. So I'm going to link a couple of articles in the show notes, uh, my source for this interesting little story, it comes from atlasobscura.com. And I also found another related link uh, if you want to read uh, a little bit more about it. But uh, pretty crazy for, uh, you know, one man's investment tips saved a town. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. It's like the, it just shows you truly what the power of syrupy sugar water is <laughs> on this world. There's nothing to... Nothing Americans love more than sugar water. And I can attest that I'm one of those people. I love sugar water. So I could totally uh, get behind this. That's crazy. And that's like some serious foresight. Yeah. And you also mentioned Atlas Obscura. Man, they have so many awesome things and stories. But also they like do events and things around town. Like uh, Melissa and I went to this Atlas Obscura event once here in Denver. It was a... uh, it was an Alice in Wonderland event, and it was basically like in this old, um, it was like an old antiques museum, but they had all these like old toys and everything, and then the entire thing was like this free-form scavenger hunt where you would, uh, you had like a sheet of riddles from like the Mad Hatter or whatever, and then they had turned the entire building into this like riddle scavenger hunt where you had to like go and find these little tiny toys that were like in these cases and they were basically like clues. You have to like look at the wallpaper. You know, they had kind of like scripted the whole thing around the way that this uh, this awesome old antique store was already laid out. And then you had like three hours to, to solve them all. And we ended up hooking up with this random guy, Kevin, 
And uh, he was kind of like a master uh, problem solver. So with his help, Melissa and I, and he and his wife, we were like one of only three groups that solved all of the riddles. So we really got to ride his coattails to success on that one. I think you've uh, mentioned this before. If it wasn't on the show, then it was just to me because there was a Radiolab episode about uh, this sort of like performance art that's interactive and like problem solving. And uh, didn't you describe this as like sort of a real life video game? Well, or is it's this interesting a- you, you mentioned that Radiolab uh-huh. uh, because that was th- that was what tempted me to like, go and try to find something like this. And that episode was a... Actually, I may have heard about it on... It may have been Radiolab, some other podcast, but they talked about uh, this thing called Then She Fell. And this is like this big production in New York where it, it's like interactive one-on-one theater where yeah. you, the customer are interacting with all of the performers. And so I was like, I wonder if there's anything like that here in Denver. And obviously there's not, cause that's a New York production, but that's what led me to finding this other Alice in Wonderland themed event all through Atlas Obscura, which is, I mean, it seems like they're always putting on awesome events like that, which unfortunately, you know, with two kids, I don't get to get out to as many Atlas Obscura events as I would like, but, uh, it's definitely a good resource for thinking of like something crazy around your town. Yeah, interesting. I, I had no idea. I knew they had like, I don't know, it was like a, maybe a travel guide and some books, uh, but I didn't realize that there was like a uh, some events, some uh, Atlas Obscura cons that I could attend. Indeed. <laughs> yeah, man. Probably got some out. Actually, Camp V is probably a hot spot. It's probably most of the things that are coming out there. Atlas Obscura, they just didn't, uh, didn't yeah. tell you. Yeah, it's, it's possible. Definitely. Too busy flying off to Brazil to yeah. keep your finger on the pulse of what's going on at Camp V. It's true. I, I got home just in time for the uh, thong optional croquet match, which uh, uh, I, I will be missing and Bree will be playing uh, in my honor uh, so I can record the podcast. So Thong or no thong? I've, you know, I'm, I'm not sure. It's optional. I'll have to... It's, <laughs> that was the option that was given to us. What either Either you have it or you don't. That's well, it. I guess uh, do, Schrodinger's they give, thong. Do, do they have like community thongs if you show up without one? <laughs> uh, that's a great question. <laughs> I don't know. I've only played croquet at Camp V once. And, uh, you know, it's hard to say who was wearing thongs and who wasn't because we were all just dressed like normal people. Well, let's just say they were not optional that night. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I had a, an idea. Um, this kind of leads into the content circuit, but a way that we could expand the mythology of this show. You know, we have a, we have a few things like, uh, uh, contentology being a real thing. And you've all know Harari being the world's most mentioned or the show's most mentioned man, <laughs> several, uh, several things that we say over and over and over. I like but- how the show almost, uh, bled out into <laughs> being the world there for a minute. Maybe it's our world. Yeah. That was a Freudian slip maybe. Yeah. Um, but, uh, like how you covered breaking bad last week, it got me thinking, um, we can have a, an entire new category of content on the show, things that, you know, like mainstream content, because a lot of what we cover is maybe us trying to sell you guys, the audience, on ideas for new types of content cons- to consume, but also Breaking Bad, and we've covered a few other things. It's fun to cover, you know, Avatar, something that you know intimately and 
almost everyone has seen. You can cover it in an entirely different way because you don't really have to worry about spoilers as much. I was thinking that maybe we could call these uh, eco-friendly content because they're recyclable. <laughs> I like that. So you have like an eco-friendly day where you cover, I don't know, a Jurassic Park or whatever. Yeah, I, I like that. I like that plan. All right, put that in the uh, put that in the lore bible for okay. the content clearinghouse. All right, <laughs> okay. Uh, I keep that right next to the tear journal, <laughs> the fear journal. Oh, was it a uh, fear yeah. journal? That's right. The fear journal Something. just caught the tears. Yeah, fear journal typically leads to tears. It does. So, speaking of leading to things, uh, <laughs> we'll lead right into your content circuit, Brett. Fantastic. Well, really, the only thing that I've watched. Um, on my uh, deadheads to Brazil and back were uh, Better Call Saul episodes. Um, it was a really nice surprise to get through four seasons and then realize not only is there a fifth season on Netflix, but I had already downloaded all of the episodes, which oh, is great man. when you don't have uh, service. So great foresight uh, on my part. I'll really give myself a public pat on the back for that. And uh, I consumed all five or... Uh, I don't know how many episodes are in a season, maybe 10. I consumed all of those uh, episodes on season five. And uh, now I'm just eagerly awaiting season six, which I don't think comes out until next year, maybe even later. I didn't even know season five was out yet, so I need to watch that. But I do have one question. Was that yeah. a thong optional pat on the back? Or <laughs> everything is, you know, I've realized everything is thong optional. I guess, yeah. You know, this is the new millennium. You can it is however you want. Exactly. Um, everybody has that choice, but I, I have to say, I, I am so blown away by Better Call Saul. I think it is. I mean, it's it's up there with Breaking Bad in terms of the quality. I don't know why it never gained traction like uh, it did. I, I don't know if it, you know, the storyline has just it's just lacking that hook of like a high school teacher becoming a meth kingpin um you know this is more kind of like uh i don't know a, a shady lawyer type and like the development of that story arc but um for anybody that's on the fence about it even if you didn't watch breaking bad i mean of course it would make a lot more sense if you were a breaking bad fan but this just it has a little bit different of a tone but it is just as good as breaking bad it is a fantastic show i can't get enough I liked it even more, and the cinematography, man, it's like one of the most beautiful shows on television with all of the, just the way that they do their lighting. Oh, yeah. It, it, there's so many scenes where it looks like the characters are carved out of darkness, and you're like only seeing the highlights, and I cannot imagine that being an easy thing to do on, you know, on film, just have such a, a precise look with your lighting. That was well, one of I the think, first things I noticed about the show. I think some of the like color palettes too of just like the characters you know their wardrobes and the cars and then like you'll get these scenes um that kind of tie these episodes together like ice cream falling in a sidewalk and then this micro photography of the ants like starting to you know discovering this ice cream with this like operatic dramatic music in the background and the uh ants just coming to consume this ice cream I mean, it, it's it's it is on another level. Um, one thing that did bother me at first, and I had to look up because I was like, very. Uh, it, it was slightly jarring. Is the intro seems to cut out uh, 
just a little too early. Like uh, it's like a bad editing mistake or something. I wasn't sure if this was maybe because of the Netflix platform, but actually I found out looking it up that this was an intentional decision to make it look like it was edited poorly by uh, college students because that's kind of a little bit of a uh, storyline within the show is that there's like bad commercials or bad television spots edited by these like film students in college. Uh, so that was really interesting, but it, you know, it, it did like, it, it, it kind of confused me until I looked into it a little bit more, but I like a piece of art that like gets me like wondering if something's going wrong <laughs> or not with my, with my Netflix app. I love the era we live in too for content consumption where we have a question like that you could probably type like the first two or three words of the question and then like Google will autofill. Oh, is this what you're looking for? And then there's articles written about it. It just makes like, just makes being a contentologist so much more satisfying than living in an era of speculation, like yes. maybe, you know, 20 years ago. Right. It's really cool that you can pretty much find all of that information if you just know what you're doing and know where to look. Yeah. If there's anything I know, the 2020s are the era of the contentologist. That's true. And that is a real thing. And that era is real also. And put that in the lore Bible. Okay, done. <laughs> so how about you? What's on your circuitry? Um, I got a really awesome podcast. Uh, it's called With Gorley and Rust. It is, uh, it's these two guys, these two Hollywood guys, uh, Matt Gorley and Paul Rust, actors and writers, like uh there's a show on Netflix called Love, which is uh, written and produced and stars Paul Rust. He's oh, just like this really funny okay. comedian. And I think uh, I've seen that. Uh, is it a Netflix original? Love. I think so. Oh, yeah. yeah, it's really it's really funny. But they are like huge horror fans, and so the first season it's in Voorhees we trust with Gorley and Rust, and it's just they do these you know two to three hour episodes where they just break down every uh, Friday the Thirteenth movie. And then they have a whole season for Halloween, a whole season for Friday the th- or for Nightmare on Elm Street, and then they have like all these one-off episodes. And then now they're doing Jaws, all the Jaws movies, and it's funny to they're just their banter back and forth is so good, such good chemistry on the show. And they you know since they're Hollywood guys, they have very insightful takes on how these movies are made and all the things that are right and wrong with them. It's great if you're a contentophile like i'm assuming everyone that listens to this show unless you just listen because you're a josh and bredophile which is also fine yeah. it actually might be better but uh with Gorley and rust is awesome especially if you're like me and you love horror films and especially somewhat crappy 80s horror horror films because a lot of those are crappy 80s horror films nice i'll have to check that out you know the a josh and bredophile it's definitely a new term for my lexicon um, but yeah, I, you know, I, the lore Bible. I know who Paul Rust is. Um, I actually really enjoyed, uh, love and, uh, Jillian Jacobs is in it from community. And I think that's what got me kind of, you know, that's what enticed me to watch that show. And I don't remember much of the plot, but I do remember, uh, binging it and really enjoying it. I think Judd Apatow is like a creator of that series too. So yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. yeah. It's really good. Hey, watch love also. It's yeah. great. Nice. If you love love, then you'll love to love the show love. <laughs> well, how about we take a uh, quick break? Uh, I'm going to get some more lem sip, and then uh, Josh is going to uh, get into some content. I love it. <laughs> Ooh, content. 
what are some assumptions people make about you? What do they assume about you because of your profession, appearance, hobbies, or tastes? And how many of those assumptions are actually wrong? My name is Dave Kimball, and I'm the host of the Don't Assume podcast, a weekly show where my friends and I lay out all of our assumptions about one topic a week and invite in guest experts to validate or refute those assumptions. So if you want to check your own assumptions about doctors, racial division, skydiving, guns, flight attendants, or any number of other topics, come check us out at at Don't Assume Podcast on Instagram and Facebook and find the Don't Assume Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or anywhere else you like to listen. The Don't Assume Podcast is streaming now. Yeah, you know what assuming makes out of you and me. Clear it out. Okay. Welcome back to the Content Clearing House. Josh. Yes. Let <laughs> <laughs> the audio cut out for a second. Yeah, that's uh we must have I must have been uh driving through a tunnel here. Um okay, I'm back Ooh, with you. Road so podcasting. So uh, I know that you've uh, been very excited about this episode and what you're going to share with me. And you said it's going to be a long one. And uh, I didn't know if that was a euphemism for for something, but uh, I can't wait to hear what you're bringing to the show. I'm just talking about long ones all day, Brett. Okay. Actually, it's not. It's probably not a bad thing that you had the world's shortest off top because I have over eight pages of notes for this outline. It's a big one. So, as we do here, it's a big, long, pulsating one. (laughs) All right, so (laughs) I'll start you off with a question, Brett, as we do. As we do. Do you like monster movies? Yes. All right. Please expand. Actually, you don't need to. I'm going to force you to right now. Uh, What are some of the best monster movies in your mind of all time? Okay, um, a, a show that I've covered on this show, or a movie that I've covered on this show, is A Quiet Place. Um, I really enjoyed um, Stranger Things. I also really like Aliens, or Alien, the the just that monster Aliens. in general. That's a very well designed monster. Um, Aliens is also great, though. Yes, you were right. Uh, the thing is. Uh, comes to mind as just a, I don't know, just like a, a classic movie that like I still think about just, you know, how somebody can concoct just such a disturbing mishmash of like a dog and like, a, you know, you, you know what that scene I'm talking about where the thing is like running around that room, but it had like, it was like half human, half dog upside down, twisted and it goes around. Screaming. Oh my god! Little tentacles come out of its back. Oh my god! Uh, Dreamcatcher. I like that's kind of a lame movie, but it definitely unsettled me as uh, as a young lad watching Dreamcatcher. The Langoliers. Cloverfield. Terrible. It's another good monster, <laughs> and it is. <laughs> yeah, Cloverfield is a great one. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Well. It's interesting that all of your monsters are fantastical beasts. Yes. Because I'm not talking about fantastical beasts today, Brett. Okay. Uh, So, again, as quickly as you can, rattle off some of your favorite real-life monsters currently living on this planet. Uh, Okay. Um, 
I don't know what serial killers are out prowling around, but there's definitely been some real life human monsters. Um, I find uh, the look of uh, scorpions and spiders to be uh, pretty disconcerting. I definitely don't like looking at spiders. I don't think I don't mind. I don't mind scorpions, but something about the way spiders look has always been extremely unsettling to me. They're the worst. <laughs> I ever, I ever tell you my spider story? Like I have, I think I'm kind of getting over it a little bit. But I've had like my whole life one of my most crippling phobias being crushed into small spaces. Obviously, I, think, I don't think any human would be okay with that. But also spiders. Like I've had a like a preternatural aversion to spiders and i'm pretty sure it's because when i was like eight years old i was playing in the my grandma's backyard and i was just like running around like a little idiot and i started feeling all woozy i was like i don't feel good and so i went and laid down and my grandma just like trying to figure out what's wrong with me she lifted up my shirt and my back was covered in welts and this giant wolf spider was like 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 the like the dog thing just crawling out of my shirt and uh, man, that instilled some very unhealthy spider fear in my mind, like all the way into my into midlife. It's it's still spiders gross me out. So I'm right there with you. You know, that's very interesting. I have a very similar spider story. Um, when I was probably a little bit older, I I would guess maybe ten to twelve. I have a pretty bad memory for uh, time events, but. I put a shirt on. It was a tighter button-up shirt, and I felt like a sharp pain on my chest. I think to the right, if I remember correctly, and I like, you know, ouch, and I grabbed the shirt like this, like grabbed the buttons, and I like flicked my shirt back and forth, and the mangled, twitching body of a half-dead, half-alive spider, because it had been crushed against my chest, (laughs) fell out of my shirt. And I remember just like looking at it and some neurons must have been connecting in that moment because um, I've just never, you know, I've never been comfortable around them. I, I uh, have strongly avoided them. And interestingly, my parents didn't believe that I was afraid of spiders. They thought because I idolized the character of Indiana Jones that I had to choose a thing <laughs> to be afraid of because Indiana Jones was afraid of snakes and so they, oh, they thought that I, but I legitimately have been <laughs> super uncomfortable around spiders. And to this day, I, I do think I'm a little bit better now, but I still, uh, I still try to uh, outsource my elimination of the spiders to Brie. So your parents didn't buy that you may not like poisonous injecting <laughs> creatures that look like the face hugger from alien. Well, I, they I could, they couldn't, they couldn't get behind <laughs> that, that fear. I think my fear was like a little rational. Cause like if there was a spider on the wall, I like, couldn't even look at it. Like I'd leave the room and I guess they just, just like Indiana a, Jones, a little ridiculous. Now you, <laughs> yeah. he, he would repel down into the pit to get to the he arc. He still anyway. get the job done. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So not like Indiana Jones at all. <laughs> well, just, just in my mind's eye. I can, I can see where your mind's eye is focused on real life monsters, humanity, and bugs. Yes. Two things I'm not talking about today. Okay. But needless to say, this planet has plenty of real life monsters to mine for some fantastic and visceral entertainment. 
And I've been on a little bit of a real-life monster movie kick lately, so I decided to do another content conglomerate piece. Like, I'm really creating a bunch of extra work for myself lately with <laughs> yes, this new overachiever format that I've been doing. <laughs> yes, you are. Covered six books, and now today, three movies. I'm doing a real-life monster movie budget-based triple feature. Wow. So I've compiled three superb animal attack thrillers, oh. one low, one medium, and one high-budget film. All of these are movies that I love. And then I decided which one I like the best. So I am going to pass that along to all of you guys at the end. So Very nice. So is this a trilogy, a trilogy that's related to each other or only by you on this show right now they are related in the only way that matters through one contentologist <laughs> the, one of the most important sense. voices in content Today. consumption and entertainment correct excellent All right, this so, sounds this sounds like a great premise i just want to put that out there it's pretty i'm pretty excited about this and it, it works perfectly for today's show since we're not going to be here next week we're probably going to give you guys a little bit of an extended show this week by nice. covering uh, what arguably could be three separate shows. I don't know why I keep doing this to myself. Seriously, <laughs> Brett, I have a problem. All right, so we do have a lot to cover, so let's get going. So we're going to start with low budget. So the first uh, first movie is something that I've talked about briefly on the content circuit before. It's uh, a 2015 Canadian movie directed by Adam McDonald called Backcountry, which is a camping bear attack film. Very amazing and realistic so this movie had a 1.2 million dollar budget and it only made 71,000 bucks at the box office which is an absolute tra tra travesty tragedy it's all of those things it's all those t-words uh this movie definitely deserves better than that but there's a little bit of a trend with some of these movies it seems like them performing poorly at the box office oh interesting but but this film has a 92 percent on rotten tomatoes so that's wow, kind that's of good. uh that's kind of the metric for greatness these days, I think. Well, that so, and if you make it on the content clearinghouse. Exactly. I mean, yeah. this is the highest praise content can receive. Exactly. Because we only curate the best. Correct. So Backcountry tells the story of uh, these two characters, Alex and Jen, played expertly by a couple of unknowns, Jeff Roop and Missy Peregrim, two people i never heard of or seen before. And they're this city couple who might just be on the worst camping date of all time. So Alex, uh, the boyfriend, he's a bit of a woodsy know-it-all, and Jin has never been camping before, so that's already a really bad combination. But when Alex's knowledge of the forest turns out to be cursory at best and dangerously, egotistically wrong at worst, they slow burn their way into a horrific scenario by getting lost and wandering into a giant black bear's hunting grounds. And this movie is so well done. Like the, the slow burn danger that I know that you and I are both fans of, it builds up and it perfectly captures those sensations that anyone's who ever who ever been camping in the wilderness has experienced. You know, like being in a tent, you're all tucked in and you hear these like weird noises outside, maybe things like touching your tent, and you're just like hoping it will go away. Have you experienced things like this camping before? Oh, I guess you, yes. you kind of camp in a, no. a giant metal pill. Well, now we do. So, <laughs> But before uh, the days of glamping, Bri and I have done plenty of uh, tent camping. Actually, one of the spots. Schlamping? That, is that like uh, shitty camping? 
No, glamping is glamour camping. No, but schlamping is the Schlamp. opposite. Oh, I didn't, yeah. hear, I didn't hear the schla. Uh, so, uh, yeah, no, pre, pre-Airstream, Bree and I had done some tent camping in that same, um, in uh, White, uh, uh, White River National Forest. Oh, my gosh, I'm drawing a blank. Anyway, the same spot that you had camped with us there before, Bree and I had heard a sound at like two in the morning and we're, we were absolutely terrified. I'm pretty sure it was a deer, but or a Bigfoot. Uh, it, it might have been Sasquatch, but <laughs> it was it was terrifying. It has happened to us. Probably not it's, the rest uh, of what happens in this movie, though. Yeah, probably not <laughs> since you're sitting here talking to me. But uh, spoiler alert for this movie, the sounds don't go away. And uh, it results in quite possibly the most horrifying and realistic animal attack ever captured on memory card. And I was going to say film, but I doubt they could afford film on this movie's budget. <laughs> nice. So it's definitely <laughs> shot digitally. But this movie really is like a testament what you can do if you have vision and you are resourceful on a limited budget. Like the inevitable bear attack is, it's like something out of a nature documentary. It is totally brutal and realistic and they don't shy away from anything which really drives home the fact that bears might just see you as food and they won't wait for you to be dead before they start eating you so this is man this really is one of the best survival thriller movies i've ever seen and it's supposedly based on a true story a quote-unquote true story uh the story of mark jordan and jacqueline perry so there they were an ontario couple that was camping in the uh Missanaibi Provincial Park in September 2005. And this giant black bear attacked them while they were preparing for dinner. And the bear grabbed Jacqueline Perry and started dragging her into the brush. So Mark Jordan, he fought the bear off with a Swiss army knife. And that is, man, that is not bear fighting implements. Yeah, that's not, that's not the tool for that job. But, uh, he, stabbed it repeatedly in an attempt to prevent it from dragging her deeper into the woods because he knew that if it took her into the woods like you know yeah a couple hundred feet into the woods he'd probably never see her again wow so he heroically stopped this attack and then he kayaked his wife back to civilization but she unfortunately bled to death on the way out oh my gosh yeah That's it is terrible that is a horrifying story but uh after the ta- the attack he said his biggest regret was that he didn't know more about black bears uh, this is a quote from him. He said that if you have the ability to walk up to a bear, put your arm around its neck, put it in a headlock and bludgeon it a bit, you could just as easily have used the knife to literally slit its throat. But he said he expected to just be able to scare it off. So Yeah, like his- I, I'm shocked that this was a black bear. I, I was, you know, I mean, I thought black bears basically don't attack unless you have uh, surprised them and it's in defense or they have young cubs nearby, and it's a mother black bear. I was not under the, like black bears are very skittish. I've seen a few, you know, I've come across a few hiking or in the woods, and it's very hard to spot them because they run away. I mean, they're You've out of seen there. Some in the woods, yeah, they're at least twice that I can uh, think of. So once was actually mountain biking with Derek, and it was a black bear with two cubs. And we came down the trail and I like basically jumped off my mountain bike and I held the bike up between me and the bear and it just took one look at us and it just ran away at like, I mean, a good 20 miles an hour, like a full sprint with its cubs down the side of a mountain. And then the other time was Bree and I camping in Colorado. I think it was near 
uh, Marble or maybe Carbondale. I don't know, somewhere, you know, we were in our camp where we were wandering around in the woods and I thought I saw something moving and started walking towards it and realized this bear was foraging and it had, it was, its butt was towards me and it just turned and just looked right at me and just like paused for a second and then it just wandered away. Pin the tail on the bear? They just, they just go, they leave. And no, I Man. didn't pin anything on any, <laughs> any bears. But I mean, black bears, like, I, they're just, I, maybe I don't know anything about black bears, but I was always like the Mark Jordan of this story. I guess I'm the Mark Jordan of this story. I, I really thought you could scare off a black bear. Like grizzlies, that's a different story for sure. But black well, bears. they said they, they thought this bear had killed a human previously. Wow. And that's one thing about bears. Once that happens, I mean, they pretty much have to put the bear down because it's a once murder. They realize, it has to go to trial. Exactly. Get the yeah. death sentence. Yeah. Give it its fair shake. <laughs> put it on the stand. But you, uh, I mean, like once a bear kills people and realize that's a thing that they can eat and that it's easy. Wow. I think it's a, it's kind of a problem from then on, from there on Jeez, out. And that's like that one of the crazy. reasons like these places where, you know, in Alaska, like where the grizzly bears congregate, yeah. how they, you know, they really discourage people from having any, any interaction with them, not just to protect the people, but to protect the bears too. Oh, totally. If a bear kills someone, they have to kill the bear. Oh, it's just like oh, you yeah. can't let it live out there anymore. Well, if they find a, a food source, like, um, you know, we were in uh, uh, Yellowstone National Park, uh, or was it Yosemite? I always mix those two up. I think we were camping in uh, Yellowstone. One will explode and kill us all, and yeah. the other one has, <laughs> has a lot nice of bears. base jumping exits. Actually, maybe this was in Glacier because there's no grizzly. There's no grizzlies in California. This must. This might have been up in uh, Montana. Anyway, we were at a national park, and we couldn't stay in the campground in our spot with our camper popped up. So we had to sleep with it popped down so that there was no soft sides because it's hard sided except for the pop up portion. It's uh you know like a canvas material. And it was the only spot they had just reopened the spot. And the reason they had closed it for a while is because a guy was cleaning a fish at the spot. A grizzly approached him. And instead of trying to like discourage the bear, like take the fish and walk away, he went to grab his camera. The bear got the fish. He took a bunch of pictures. Now the bears found a food source, continued to approach the man. Uh, The rangers had to get involved and they basically tranquilized the bear and airlifted it helicoptered it like miles away but they were waiting a predetermined period of time to see if the bear showed up because these bears once they know there's a food source they will walk miles and miles and miles like non-stop until they find that same food source um because they're just super intelligent they have very good memories um especially when it comes to food and survival so you know and they but the rangers told us like if the bear continues to be a problem and like comes into the campground foraging for food eventually they'll have to put down the bear so it's it's really tragic it's really unfortunate yeah majestic creatures but real life monsters for sure like the werewolves of our world i feel yeah so uh mark jordan he received the star of courage from the governor of his city and uh for his heroic efforts and it was really like this story is really sad because he said that he he really credits his lack of knowledge a, as a big contributing factor in his wife's death. Like I can't even imagine living with that oh, kind that's of terrible, yeah, sense, that kind of feeling. But you know, I'm not sure why 
they say this movie is based on actual events because that is not the story of this movie. In fact, it's almost the exact opposite of what their what this movie is about, and you know what they claim their reference material is. So I don't know about you, but I kind of have like a little bit of a sticking point in my mind when movies say they're based on real events. And then, you know, you research the actual story and it's not what happened in the movie. I I would prefer they just leave that out entirely. Mitch Hedberg had a joke about that, about how like (laughs) uh, things were inspired by real events. Like I went to the zoo and saw a monkey and it inspired me to write this story about uh, whatever, like something totally exactly. different. Yeah, that's basically this. A bear attack happened once with involving two people, and so you tie your story to it. Right. But that does not hurt this movie at all. That is just a little yeah. contentology sticking point. I like, gotta um, have them. Gotta have this. So, so to make this movie, at least like the conversational and the exploratory aspects of them hiking in the woods. Adam McDonald, the director, he pulled a little bit of a Blair Witch and he kept the crew mostly invisible to the cast who never knew exactly when they were being recorded, which is really cool because this is not a found footage movie. I mean, this is like a traditional third person narrative. Film. Yeah. Okay. And Missy Peregrine, uh, the main actress, she said that she was scared at least once a day for one of the scenes they were going to be filming. And because of the budget, they worked with real bears they couldn't afford, you know, like snazzy uh, CGI effects. So they had a 600-pound black bear. Or actually, they had two of them. He tried to find the cl- the closest black bears he could find to grizzlies in size. Wow. And uh, the director said, there were rules before the camera rolled. No talking while the bears are being filmed. No sudden noises while the bears are being filmed. No looking the bears in the eye. And if another animal shows up, pray. Plus, what stay calm. Try not to let the bears know that you are scared. That so the is actors, terrifying. Oh, my dude, God. They had, to, they had to pantomime being attacked. They couldn't make any sounds. There was no screaming, so they didn't spook the bear. So all of that was added afterwards in post. And, uh, you know, when I watched this, I had no idea that the bears were real. And, like, there are scenes of the bears with their mouths right up against the human soft, supple bodies. <laughs> and uh, we have such to say, soft, supple bodies, especially so good. me. <laughs> exactly. It's just so delicious. Like, this really is one of the best monster movies of all time. Wow. And uh, real monster or imaginary. And now I want to go and watch it again, especially after knowing that the bears are real. And that's what no budget will do for you. You place was, everyone in danger to get the perfect shot. Was that bear... From Utah? The one that they use in the movie? Yeah. I don't know why. So there's, uh, I believe the, like, a movie trained celebrity bear lives in Heber City, Utah, but I feel like it's a grizzly. So probably like a mansion not. there? Uh, it, I don't, it, well, no, the bear probably lives <laughs> in a big cage, oh. but it's, uh, it's like not a, that much of a star. It's a, well, it is a star. I mean, he's been in a lot of stuff. But yeah, there's like a world class uh, bear trainer that lived somewhere in Utah that was near me when I uh, lived in there, but never saw it. Never saw him oh. walking through town with the paparazzi in, in tow. <laughs> Coming out of a restaurant. Yeah. Underwear showing in a photo. <laughs> Thong optional. <laughs> exactly. So that's my uh, low budget film. Nice. All right, moving on to the mid budget. Uh, a movie called The Reef, which is a 2010 Australian movie directed by Andrew Trauke. This one had a $3.8 million budget 
and only 124k at the box office, which again is a total T-word travesty. But again, this one has 79% on Rotten Tomato. So again, I'm not the only person saying this is great. This is an amazing movie. Wait, say the name of it again. The Reef. The Reef. Is this a? It's a surfing surfing movie. A uh, shark movie. Shark not surfing. Movie. Now this yeah, was uh, this was actually inspired by real events, right? So they say. <laughs> That's, I really think it was. It was. <laughs> it's about the. It's about the the really famous female surfer that lost her arm in a shark attack. No, you're thinking of The Shallows, which is oh, also okay. That is a really good movie. I didn't put it on here because that's a big Hollywood blockbuster. Got it. Got I only it. have one of those slots, but that is a good movie. Okay. okay. Uh, Blake Lively. Yeah, that's it. Real nice. <laughs> is that Josh's so, uh, Blake Lively is to you what Emily Blunt is to me? Maybe. Yeah. Could be. Yeah. So this movie, uh, the story, it's about Luke, who's played by Damian Walsh Howling, which is again this uh, this unknown at least here in America, Australian actor. And he has a job sailing from Australia to Indonesia to deliver a yacht for a rich client. Seems like a pretty awesome job. And he makes a vacation out of it and invites several friends. To get there, they have to sail through this area with a shallow water and a reef. And on the second day of the journey, the boat hits the reef and capsizes. So they debate between swimming for shore or waiting it out on the upturned hull of the, uh, of the capsized ship. Ultimately, Luke convinces most of the group to swim for an island. It's about 12 miles away. And wouldn't you know it, Brett, they end up swimming through a great white hunting grounds and a very psychological ordeal (laughs) begins. So the shark starts hunting them, starts picking them off. Like people will just disappear. They'll They'll be swimming, talking to someone. They turn around, and then when they look back, the person's just gone, never see them again. Oh, Just like picked off by a silent invisible killer beneath the waves yeah sharks are definitely real life monsters there's no doubt i I, I admire them i love them i think they're amazing but uh i recently listened to the last podcast on the left coverage of the uss indianapolis true story from world war ii and that is a terrifying story of real life shark hunting well, there is uh, kind of a kind of a uh, crossover style attack that happens later in this oh, story boy. Uh, that it has some similarities to what they talked about during that uh, that USS Indianapolis episode. Yeah, and uh, I imagine you, like me, probably love a good shark movie, and there are actually quite a few good ones. We already, already ah, mentioned yes, the Shallows. That's Deep the one Lucy. I have. interesting i have the shallows listed as one of the greats and i have the meg and deep blue sea listed as some of the cheesy ones even though it's the cheesiest movie i've ever seen that i kind of like i have a sweet spot for deep blue sea Uh, even though it is me too totally ridiculous oh it's so ridiculous the who is the rapper that's in that movie with the parrot ll cool j -J, is a shark's fin yeah (laughs) yeah also, Thomas Jane, he might be my Emily Blunt, if I'm being honest. <laughs> <laughs> Makes perfect sense. But uh, The Reef, this movie is very grounded. It's no Deep Blue Sea. Like I've always been a little bit low-grade terrified of the ocean. Not quite like spider scared, but I've known from a young age that I am way too important to be food. So swimming in the realm of sharks kind of scares the <laughs> shit out of me. Your way, you think awfully highly of yourself. I know you really are the, just a delicious snack for some real life beast. 
you know, if, if thinking I'm too important to be food is my baseline egotistical standard, <laughs> I don't think that I'd be in too presumptuous here. Yeah. All right. I'll, I'll grant you that. <laughs> but, uh, when I lived in California, I, I kind of confronted that fear. Like I, I surfed regularly for over a year. Like I was never awesome at surfing, but I did go out in the ocean three or four times a week. And actually you and I surfed. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Together you were quite good. California. You were quite good. You have the lanky build of uh, 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 maybe a, a surfer in training. Shark bait. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Shark but bait. sitting Ooh, and ah. waiting for a set of waves to come in is an extremely vulnerable feeling, which is it's kind of a test uh, a testament to how fun surfing actually is for me to be like, yep, I'll sit here and wait and having no idea what's going on underneath me for the next set of waves to come in. But that exact feeling of vulnerability is why this movie is so good. Like it pretty much uh, embodies that feeling of helplessness when you are above the water and every bit of the world that can immediately threaten you is effectively invisible. Yeah. So Luke in this movie has a pair of swim goggles and he's constantly on the lookout. But when he does catch a glimpse of, sh of the sharks, again, the filmmakers use real shark footage. So one of the coolest things about this movie is its use of real sharks, which I don't think I've really seen that in a shark movie before. There's no CGI used in the film. The same team that shot the sharks in open water, which I guess maybe they had a similar thing. I don't know if I've seen open water, so maybe that's why I was uh, open water. This is the only one. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't it, seen it. Have you seen open water? I was actually just about to bring it up. It's a pretty harrowing, uh, you know, it's a it's a survival horror thriller film, just like you're talking about, and it's very good. And I actually think it was based on a real story, as these all seem to be. But there, there really was, uh, I think, an American uh, couple that were scuba divers that were on an Australian uh, scuba trip, and they miscounted how many people got on the boat, and they left these people on you know scuba yes. diving in the open ocean and you know why the film is just loosely based off of the real events is they have no idea what happened to this couple right like they, they i don't think they ever recovered bodies like they were just gone and they didn't even like realize it until you know by the time by the time they sent out a search party to look for two bobbing heads uh you know above water floating somewhere no in the chance. middle of the yeah just no chance uh, open water is a great film. It, it, uh, that it was kind of terrifying. Yeah. <clears throat> Especially for a so scuba the, diver. Yeah. I can imagine. Yeah. So the same team that shot the sharks in that movie, uh, shot, shot the sharks in this film and, uh, they would, they chummed the water and then they captured footage of real life, great whites. And then Andrew Trocky, the director wrote character scenes around the footage that they captured. So he was kind of scripting based on what they had footage of the sharks doing. And, uh, you know, it's the same, same idea as backcountry, you know, save on the budget. It's cheaper to endanger cameramen than it is to get some CGI, yeah. but <laughs> that definitely helps this movie because it never looks fake because nothing in it is fake. Wow. And again, based quote on quote, a true quote, story quote, <laughs> uh, quotes. Yep. So the, the real story is about Ray Boundy. He was a prawn trawler that was traveling with two friends, Dennis Murphy and Linda Horton, off the coast of Australia in 1983. And their ship did, cap, did capsize, and the trio decided to swim to a nearby reef. 
Uh, on the swim, Dennis Murphy was bit on the leg and eventually swam away from the group to lure the shark away and then was pulled down and never seen again, which is kind of the uh, – that's the crossover kill to the USS Indianapolis, except for wow. I think in that story, they pushed those dudes away when they realized what was happening. Yeah, when they had like injuries and, yes. they, and they were uh, basically chumming the water with their like blood and uh, – yeah. Shark yeah, that, bait. Ooh, did ha, you ha. did you know anything about the USS Indianapolis before that episode? Uh, just from Quint's monologue in Jaws, basically. Oh yeah, I mean, I I had no idea. Like that was literally hundreds of people like getting you know picked off or dying in the water from just uh, exposure. That was a wild story. Yeah, I would say that sharks are a little bit higher on my real life monster list than bears, mainly because. Sharks have, not that bears have sympathy, but <laughs> sharks are just like remorseless yeah. eating machines. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're like, they're, they're it, it, getting killed by a shark is kind of like getting killed by a robot, I feel like. Go it, on. It just has, you know, it's like a soulless, it feels like uh, you're yes. getting just destroyed by like a soulless like killing machine basically. It's horrifying. You know, I I I wonder though, I feel like shark uh the fear of sharks is probably irrational. It's probably like the fear of flying. Like I don't know much about the statistics of shark attacks, but I imagine it's so rare, but you just hear about the few times that it happens and you know, once again you don't hear about the thousands of deaths uh by automobile or like other you know slipping in the bathroom and hitting your head getting into the shower um so i wonder i just feel like if you're not can you imagine a movie that's just based on that (laughs) yeah final destination yeah it's kind of that way but I, i just feel like i don't know the the fear of sharks is probably an irrational one is my guess well, it's completely avoidable for one, but I think that like the novelty of <laughs> that land shark type evolves. of death, yeah, exactly, yeah. But the novelty of it is what makes it so right. The visceral nature of it, it's like mythological, almost yeah. like dying in a shark attack. But the the visuals that your mind can concoct are just so powerful from just envisioning yourself being eaten yeah. by a soulless killing machine. That you know, it's just. You can't help but have some deep-seated fear of yeah, that. I, I I hear you. I'm sitting here now imagining that, and I'm afraid. There's one right behind you. <laughs> so, uh, the in the in the real life story, so Dennis Murphy bit, swam off, pulled down, dead. Linda Horton. Uh, a few hours later, she was grabbed while they were swimming, and. Uh, Ray Boundy was holding her hand and he was basically fighting the shark in like a tug of war and the shark twisted and basically broke her out of his grip and he never saw her again. Oh, geez. And then Ray was rescued 36 hours later. And I have the same problem with the based on true story, the tagline for this that I do for backcountry because that real life story is already so dramatic. Same thing with the backcountry story. Like, why change it at all? I, yeah, I prefer, right. again, they just leave the true story stuff out of it. Leave it on the cutting room floor if you're not yeah. going to follow a, a narrative that doesn't need any dramatizing. Like, that's already right. horrifying enough. 
Yeah, I I don't know. I think that there's probably a tech or what's the word I'm looking for? There's there's probably a draw for audiences to uh you know, they don't want to make it so realistic that it's like either disrespectful or it makes audiences uncomfortable, but they want to make it similar enough that you can kind of like, you know, be aware that, oh, this could really happen in real life because this basically did happen in real life. And then they can also edit it to however they want to change the characters or the storyline or how they want to cast it to create some more uh, dramatic tension between maybe love interests or whatever that might not be uh, relevant or accurate to real life. I don't know. I I want to talk to some filmmakers about why... They, uh, you know, wh- because I agree, just don't, you know, just don't say that it's based on true events or inspired by true events when it does differ significantly. Well, let me paint a picture for you okay. and see if it changes your mind. Imagine that Josh and Brett are on their skydiving trip next week and we get attacked by uh, here to <laughs> unknown air sharks. Okay. <laughs> a flock and of I get eaten. birds. All right. It's like this big dramatic survival okay adventure in the sky i get eaten okay yeah and then you're the you're the survivor you eventually you tell your story it's everyone just loves your heroics and then whenever they decide to make the movie they just write me completely out of it they change your name they change all the details wouldn't you as the survivor be more insulted by that that they would Dane to tag your name and the fact that this thing happened to you onto a completely different story. Yeah. If they're going to make a film about an event that happened to me where I lost loved ones, I would want them to just do it the way it was because that's the story. Now you're making me think that maybe it's about money and they don't want to pay for the rights to your story. (laughs) Of course. Because if you think about the climbing movie, 127 Hours, I mean, that was basically an accurate portrayal of Aaron Ralston's story. And it kind of disproves my hypothesis uh, for drawing audiences in because 127 Hours was extremely popular and, you know, it was very accurate. And they tried to, you know, make it as accurate as possible. And I think that was a big draw for it. But, that, you know, they probably had to give Aaron Ralston some uh, some uh, cut of the profits because... Like you should. Yeah, you like you a should. blockbuster film <laughs> he, on he your life story. It. He earned yeah. it. He, he, yeah. He cut off his arm and lived to tell the tale. I doubt with a combined box office uh, take of $200,000 between these last two films, yeah. <laughs> they probably couldn't afford any real life story rights. I, yeah. Yep. But you know, true. like uh, I talked about last week, Lords of Chaos, that film about the Norwegian black metal. Yeah. And, I'm listening uh, to it right now. So the movie, yeah. I mean, it is almost word for word accurate to the story that last podcast told. Yeah. And I loved it so much more because of that, because I I already knew what was going to happen. Spoiler alert, but uh, you know, it's based on real events. And so I was waiting. I was like, are they going to mess this up? Are they going to mess this up? And they just hit like every beat. And it's because that story already had all the drama it needs. Yeah. I'd say that both of these attack, these animal attacks have all the dramatic beats they need. They that's true. Yeah. Just make it a, just me. I'd say you just make it a a fictional tale yeah. and you make the exact same movie 
I don't think that it, it would have hurt their box office take at all to do it that way. Can I, can I just interject on a totally different subject and say I don't understand black metal or like metal music is very hard for me to understand why people listen to it. Yeah, I think it's... Uh, it's, it's very like... I, I just don't understand it, I think. I think it's like very technical music. You know, it's just like... Yeah. I've, I've heard I'd that, imagine, but it's, it's extremely just very, hard to play. It's very loud and... Uh, very aggressive, very energetic, and not in the ways that I like for my music, but to each their own. It Indeed. is a very interesting story. I'm, I'm still a, uh, maybe a, a third or a halfway through hearing about it on the podcast. Um, but yeah, the black metal, the Norwegian black metal scene was something else. <laughs> for sure. it was. <laughs> so let's wrap up this yeah. reef. Yeah. Uh, this, uh, this is the Empire Strikes Back of this trilogy, right in the middle. Um, regardless of all this like true life nonsense, you know the Reef is still amazing. It's been listed in several top five shark movies of all time lists, and I think it's wow. a version the CGI really pushes it into the psychological realm, like what I imagine a real life shark attack would be like, at least until you start getting eaten, and then I think it would go from psychological to physical very quickly. Wow. But just that fear of what's under the waves, that's like the that's the feeling this movie taps into. Yikes. Yikes indeed. Yikes. All right. Now we're moving into high budget. Oh. Like what's so, high budget? You've gone from like one point five million to like three point five million or something like that. Thirteen point five million, buddy. I mean, this still we're Marvel's like like they make like five hundred million dollar movies. That's like a whole different okay. playing field. Okay. But uh, so, this you movie said five million? Uh, 13.5 oh, million. Oh, 13.5 million. Okay. Yeah. Right. That's pretty. That's and this movie. It's more money crawl. than I got. Indeed. C- crawl. Crawl. Yes. So it made 91 million at the box office. So this one is a raging success, but it actually has the lowest Rotten Tomato score still at um, 84%, which, oh, actually, you know what? No, it's the second lowest. Scratch that. The Reef is the lowest. Man, screw you, Rotten Tomatoes. The Reef oh, is no. great. <laughs> but uh, it's. Uh, so the this film, it's a 2019 alligator survival movie directed by Alexandra Asia, or Alexandra, Alexander Asia. It stars Kayla Scolidero and uh, Barry Pepper as father-daughter uh, duo Haley and Dave Keller, and they're besieged by killer alligators in a slowly flooding Florida crawl space as this hurricane looms down in their swampland neighborhood. And let me guess, so this is based on a real story. Not at all. <laughs> This is a regular people besieged by real life monsters film. And thankfully they dispense entirely with any based on real life nonsense with this one. Thank goodness. Which is a credit to it. That is. Yeah. And this one has like real life star power with B team leading man. Barry Pepper is one of the leads. Like I've actually really like, I really like Barry Pepper ever since seeing him in saving private Ryan. He's the sniper. Oh yeah. Yeah. He's definitely one of those guys that I wouldn't go out of my way to watch everything in his catalog. I'm not like a pepperhead or anything, (laughs) but I definitely (laughs) watch something he's in if it's on. And well, he was, he's in this and it was on. So I watched it and I really liked it. Yeah. I can, I can picture Barry Pepper from that, uh, saving private Ryan. That was, I want to see what he looks like now. I'm going to look this guy up. Barry Pepper. Now. (laughs) 
he was on the ground floor. Heard the shot. <laughs> yeah. Don't go out there, boys. The sniper's got oh, talent. Yeah. Okay. He's, uh, some of these pictures, he has long hair. Yeah. Interesting. What a hippie. <laughs> but uh, anyways, they filmed this movie in Serbia instead of Florida. I did not realize that that was a Florida stand-in. But the, in this film, they didn't use any real alligators. The The actors were battling animatronics and CGI stand-ins and stuntmen in green screen suits. But the water was very real. They spent hours a day submerged in water. And Scoladario, the lead actress, she said she loved like this grueling shoot because she hates the Hollywood-style actor that goes back to their trailer between every take. And she said that she would sometimes leave her... Uh, leave her makeup on like she wouldn't take a shower after a day of shooting. So she would just be go to bed covered in like blood and, wow. and uh, alligator battling makeup. Cause it took so long to apply that stuff. Jeez. So she basically lived like a hurricane hobo for several days just to save time in the makeup chair. And uh, her character Haley is a competitive swimmer, which as you can imagine from a dramatic dramatic narrative stance really comes in handy when you're battling alligators in the swamp. Definitely. So she was not a swimmer before the movie, but she worked worked with a, an Olympian trainer in London for seven weeks before the shoot so she could do all of her own breath-holding stunts and wow. swimming stunts. That's awesome. Yeah, it's really cool. Like, you can definitely tell it's her, like, in these yeah. deep-water swimming scenes. And uh, this one is definitely, like, a glossier Hollywood production. And with that comes a certain fan- fantastical elements uh, to the action so there's tons of dramatic close calls that work perfectly on film, but would never happen without dramatic narrative driving what's happening. Sure, yeah. But, but that's not to say that this isn't a riveting real-life monster movie. The effects are top-notch. I mean, like some just amazing CGI work, and the ad- the damage inflicted by the alligators is believable and brutal. And when you watch it, you're like, that is definitely not a way I would want to go out. Yikes. So this is a Hollywood movie through and through. And if there's one thing Hollywood knows how to do, it's make really good movies. And they have like some spectacular water sets. Just uh, like the house slowly flooding, the levee breaking and like blowing cars away. It's just, man, it is like a, it's a stunt spectacular, Brett. Nice. Uh, this definitely and sounds like kind of my kind of movie. I feel like I remember you recommending me. Uh, this, I'm sure I this have. Movie, yeah. I'm sure I have in the past. Yeah. Like any good uh, horror or monster film, this movie makes excuses to introduce new and disposable characters just so you can see the alligators perform these wicked kills. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and there's something about a monster that's just as effective on land as it is in the water. I mean, that's like really the ultimate enemy that exists on Earth right now. I mean, nature is absolutely insane. Seeing all three of these movies and watching the animal attacks and just imagine like, well, this is what happens like when an antelope dies or, you know, when like a, a water bison gets pulled down in Africa, it's just like you you see that on a nature doc. You're like, Oh, that's nature for you. But just imagining yourself as a stand in, man, it really changes your whole perception of just like what it, what is required to stay alive in a world where you don't have a, an electrically lit and heat controlled above ground cave built for yeah, yourself. Right. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So this, uh, 
this is like a really great popcorn monster movie. It'll it'll make you want to keep your pets, small children, and all other easily eaten loved ones away from ponds in Florida, which I'm kind of glad I didn't see this before I went on my honeymoon because uh, other than having our hearts broken by NASA and not being able to go on the vomit comet on our honeymoon, we also uh, we went and flew the uh, le- the jet lev. I think it's called. It's the water. Oh, yeah. back, uh, the water jetpack. Yeah, this and we did that awesome. in Florida, dude. It is that thing was so fun. But we did it in Florida, and uh, we we pulled up to the site, and it was just this like it looked like a runoff pond on the side of the highway, and and Melissa was like, "Wow, took me to a trash pond for our honeymoon. How romantic!" <laughs> but uh, that's a good one. Once they once the guy got there, I mean, it was like clearly big enough for us to fly this uh, jet lev. But the whole time when I wasn't flying, I was just thinking about like alligators there's almost certainly alligators in this water luckily we did not get eaten but it's the jet, crazy the like jet love is the perfect alligator escape uh vessel though until you run out of gas and you <laughs> fall into their eagerly <laughs> awaiting open mouths yeah, that's true yeah so uh i don't know swimming in florida outside seems crazy to me but uh you know, this is the kind of movie that makes you realize how lucky we are that dinosaurs don't still walk the earth, except they still kind of do with alligators and crocs. Not talking yeah. about the shoes, buddy. I'm talking about the giant death machines. Oh, yeah. Now, whereas Crawl is like a set em up, knock em down, set piece driven <laughs> monster thriller, the Reef and Backcountry are grounded survivor thriller monster movies. And uh, the reef and backcountry really make you question how you would react in these scenarios. Instead of just yelling your ingenious solutions at these adrenaline-soaked situations on screen few, that few people have ever, ever experienced, those movies really make you think about, like, what would I do if my camping buddy was being dragged off into the woods by a bear, you know? Oh, gosh. Yeah. It is, you know, those are, like, those are some tough questions you have to answer, but it's also, like, kind of, like, hallmark of good cinema that can actually make you put yourself into that scenario instead of just you know being like a marvel film where like yeah this is this is amazing but not something i can relate to in any real physical way totally yeah i you want to walk a mile in those uh those heroes crocs for sure indeed those uh real life dinosaur shoes yeah and uh so the reef backcountry grounded survival thrillers Crawl, it's a thrill ride, and sometimes that's what you want, an expertly crafted action movie with awesome monster effects. And all of these films do a great job of developing their characters and making them more than just caricatures and turning them into people you really care about, you know, people that are seem to be more important than just food. And my favorite, without a doubt, of all three of these is Backcountry. It's, in my opinion, the greatest animal attack scene ever filmed. So if you are in the mood for some real-life monsters, check out Backcountry, The Reef, and Crawl. You can find Crawl on Hulu right now. Um, that one's free. The other two are available on Prime. You might have to pay for Backcountry, I think, but if you're going to pay for one of the movies on this list, that would be the one. It really is like top of the line for real-life monster movies. And I've watched several. I've watched it several times because no monster movie has ever really touched that primal nerve in my mind like Backcountry. It's got to be the most realistic bear attack ever filmed. And it was the cheapest film on this list to make. 
And that's really a testament what you can do when you're forced to work within constraints, which unfortunately seems to be a lesson that Hollywood will never learn. But I'm glad that there are still these independent filmmakers making stuff like this. Wow. And I, I like how you got a hot take in on Hollywood. And Josh, Burn. I cannot wait to watch these movies. I actually did have Backcountry on my list since you mentioned it the last time. And uh, I'm very glad that you brought it to the show because now I have no excuses. It's got to jump to the top of the list. And I do like my uh, my fear bone to get tickled just every once in a while. So I am definitely going to queue up these real-life monster movies. And it's, it seems like the perfect activity to uh, curl up in bed uh, when you're sick and drink some Lemsip and watch the horrible and all too realistic uh, violent deaths of people that just, it, they could be us out on a, uh, a camping trip, a scuba trip, or just sitting at home in Florida. So. Nothing cures <laughs> a cold better than imagining being eaten alive. Uh, that is that is true. It makes me grateful. It's just a little congestion. Well, let's uh, let's all hope we never become animal food. And uh, thank you so much for uh, listening. As just a reminder, we won't be here next week. We'll, uh, I'm surely, come out with some great content for the week after that. Um, come out, skydive with us at the Sup Girl Boogie, and uh, make sure you tune in. We have an Instagram at the Content Clearing House. We have a Facebook, uh, same screen name. We have a uh, a email account it's content clearinghouse <laughs> at gmail.com i'm told we have a discord i'm still a little unsure what that is but we have it so check it out and uh, we'll see you next week thanks for listening and if you come out to the sup girl boogie we'll sign your iphone <laughs>